the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Remember the days of the old schoolyard? We used to laugh a lot. Oh, don't you remember? Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The interview with Hugh Hewitt today is with Corey DeAngelis, a new guest to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Look, I try and keep an eye out for myself when I was 30 years old, uh, busy trying to accumulate writing and appearances, trying to make sense and trying to make a mark. And wholly on his own, without ever contacting me, Corey DeAngelis caught my attention by his writing in his Twitter feed. Corey is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. He's also the executive director of the Educational Freedom Institute, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, a senior fellow at the Reason Foundation. He was named on the Forbes 30 under 30 list for his work on education policy and received the, and received the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020. He is an education specialist, and he's welcome to the Hugh Hewitt Show for the first time. Hi, Corey. Welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Now, how old are you? I'm actually 30 now. I'll be uh, 31 in a couple months. So I uh, can't really say I'm 30 under 30 anymore, but I did receive that award in 2020. Okay. Now, Corey, I, I, you really did catch my eye by virtue of your work, and that is really rare. But you're on the Hugh Hewitt Show, and we have a tradition here. Two questions for every first-time guest. First of all, was Alger Hiss a communist spy? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. The answer is yes. You should know that. Number two, have you read The Looming Tower? No. All right. You should read that. Now that we've got those two things done, let's get to what you are working on. Would you give us the bio? Where are you from and how did you end up diving head deep into the deep end of the education reform pool? Yeah, so I'm actually the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, a school choice advocacy group. And I first experienced school choice as a high school student. I attended government-run schools all through K-12, through so that's probably why I didn't read the, uh, the books that you're referring to. In San Antonio, Texas, but in high school, I was able to go to something called a magnet school. It's a school that you're not residentially assigned to. It's still run by the government technically, but at least you have some degree of choice with magnet schools. And I felt like that had a positive impact on my life trajectory. And I would like to push for other families to have similar options, but it shouldn't be limited to government run schools. Children's education dollars should follow them to wherever they want to go, a private school, charter school. If they want to go to the public school, fine, but also to a home school type of uh, situation as well, whether that's a micro school or a pandemic pod or a homeschooling co-op, the money should follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. That so is after where high school, I did my. 
But, okay, okay, I was just going to say that's where Ohio's backpack bill is headed, and we're going to come back to that. But so you grew up in San Antonio. Are you? Do you have a single mom? Are you in a working family? What kind of background is it? Yeah, my dad was in the Air Force, um, and he was he served for 22 years. That's why we ended up in San Antonio, where I grew up most of my life. I was actually born in Sacramento, but I don't remember it because we moved out of there by 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 the time I was like one or two. And uh, yeah, we're working class family and um, didn't really have the the means to pay for private school tuition and fees. Um, and so, yeah, I went to a middle school that was government run. I, I don't think it was a, a super great experience. And I, I think there was like a night and day difference between middle school to high school. And even the, the high school that I was residentially assigned to, I was actually on that campus for my magnet school. They were located in a similar area. And I was able to see the night and day difference for four years um, between the disorder in the classroom and the other school and the opportunities that I had in, in the magnet school. Now, we're on in San Antonio, uh, Corey. So people will want to know the name of your high school. Can you tell us? Yeah. Yeah, Communications Arts High School. And it's it was actually named one of the top 20 um, schools, uh, public high schools in the nation in um I think it was Newsweek, but I don't remember the exact publications. But what was yeah, the, the what, uh, communications art? Were you doing media journalism? Is that what that is? Well, we had some specialized classes in in, in uh, design and speech and um, communications types of classes, but it we had all the core classes as well. What was interesting in my district is we actually had like four different magnet schools you could choose from, whether that's business careers or communications arts. We had a health careers uh, path as well. There's also a construction careers type of um, uh, magnet school as well in my district. So we had a fair amount of choice, but again, it was all limited to government run schools and you couldn't take your education dollars to a private school or uh, use that for a homeschooling type of option. And I think the money should follow the child to wherever you're getting an education. Uh, we agree. We're going to get there. Where did you do your college? University of Texas at San Antonio. I did a bachelor's and master's in economics, and I had a great advisor there by the name of John Merrifield. He's now retired from his professor position there, but he was more of a free market economist. Uh, there wasn't a lot of them there, but he guided me towards um, this this idea of the free market I had already uh, I had already been a libertarian before entering college but um, he he also nudged me to go to this PhD program at the University of Arkansas where I really started to dig deep into school choice research my first study there uh, with Patrick Wolf we looked at the association between the Milwaukee voucher program and using that program, and crime reduction later on in life. We actually had the individual student records, criminal records, for about 2,000 students using the program compared to the kids in the government-run schools in Milwaukee. And we found significant reductions in crime and also in paternity suits as well, which could stem from teenage pregnancies. And so that really thrust me into the national conversation on school choice. And then after my PhD, I went to Cato Institute, Reason Foundation, and now American Federation for Children. Now, Cato and I have had our arguments over the years because I think they're too libertarian. Reason kind of moves them closer to mainstream conservatism. And it appears to me that you're a mainstream conservative. That's what I think your writing tells me is that you're a mainstream conservative in favor of school choice, educational opportunity, things like the backpack bill, incremental reform, 
and where there are public schools, which you call government schools by choice. I refer to them public schools for the benefit of the audience so that they know what we're talking about. You want them at least to function as well as possible. Am I not correct? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not pro-private, anti-public or pro-public, anti-public. I'm just arguing for choice. I mean, look, allowing fam- if, if I argue that we should allow families to choose their grocery store, which they can, that doesn't make me automatically anti-Safeway. Even if I'm talking about like a food stamp program, you can take your money to Safeway if you want, but you could also take the money to, to Walmart or Trader Joe's. The money follows the decision of the family. And so I think that's a false conversation to say whether you're pro public or private. Some public schools might be the right fit for some students, but for other families, they may feel like their values are aligned more with the private school in the area. And so, yes, all, all private are not better than all public and not the other way around either. And in fact, the competition leads to better outcomes in the public schools too. And that evidence is pretty clear. 25 of 27 studies on the topic have found statistically significant positive effects of school choice competition on the kids who remain in the public schools. So school choice is a rising tide that lifts all boats. It's a win-win situation. You know, Corey, I don't even think it's an argument anymore. It's not just a power struggle. And Chicago's teachers' illegal strike this week underscored what has been the collapse of credibility in the public school, public union, teachers' union sector that I think is complete. And uh, some teachers get mad at me when I say this, but they have become perceived now as the opponents of children because of their unions and that the school districts are now serving as a benefits organization for teachers as opposed to an educational mission for children. Has the country, do you think I'm right in feeling that this is a, it's not going to ever be a consensus, but a very strong majority of Americans have contempt now for teachers unions? Yeah. And I want to make clear, it's not the same. Teachers unions aren't the same thing as teachers. Um, And in fact, a lot of the times the union bosses don't push for policies that benefit the teacher. I mean, they're making them look bad ever since March of 2020. You have them pushing to defund the police. You have them pushing for wealth taxes before they could reopen the schools. I'm referring to the Los Angeles teachers union and Chicago teachers union. They they had some slip ups as well. One of their board members was vacationing in Puerto Rico last January while railing against reopening the schools. So the the unions make the, the rank and file members look bad. And then they um, they also push to just put more people into the buildings, which means more dues paying members, which benefits people like Randy Weingarten, who make over five hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. Um, but if you look at the trends over time, although we we throw more and more money into the government run school system, the public school system, the teacher salaries are pretty stagnant over time. So when teachers are you know complaining about having to dig into their pockets for supplies, I, I kind of feel bad for them. But they're, the, the problem isn't with their competition, private and charter schools. The problem is that their employer is a geographic monopoly that doesn't have any particularly strong incentives to funnel the resources into the classroom. So they spend it on administrative bloat and staffing surges. And in fact, between 1992 and 2014, although we increased per pupil education expenditures by 27 percent, Teacher salaries in real terms actually dropped by 2 percent. You know, Glenn Youngkin campaigned on that. Glenn Youngkin campaigned on raising teacher salary, which I believe is a conservative message. Back when Senator Romney was Governor Romney, he had McKinsey and company do a uh, study of the most important variable in schools. And it's always the teacher. It's always the teacher. But we're going up every year. We spend more money on public schools and we get less out of the, the cream of the teaching core. It's a stagnant profession. Yeah, and it's not a problem with the employees in the system. It's a problem with the system itself. They can 
And we saw that clearer than ever, as you pointed out, it, since March of 2020, over the pandemic period, everything else, you know, the private schools were fighting to reopen, the government school teachers unions were fighting to remain closed. And that's be because of difference of incentives, not because of a difference of the nature of the of the people in the system. It's the system itself. The, the One of those sectors gets your money regardless of whether they open their doors for business. And in fact, when they kept their doors closed in the public sector, they could actually use that as leverage to get more resources from the taxpayer, and it worked. For over the three uh, COVID relief bills, they received $190 billion since March of 2020 in K-12 education. That's about three to $4,000 per student. In places like Chicago, they received $2.8 billion, and they were still trying to keep their schools closed two years later in 2022. At that point, it's like the hostage takers took the ransom payments and tried to keep the hostages. It, it was just absolutely backwards. And it's because the incentives in the system are so messed up. And the only way to fix that is to give the money to the parents so that there's true bottom-up accountability for the public schools and the teachers unions to do the right thing. Are you following the backpack bill in, in Ohio, Corey? We got about a minute to the break here. Yeah, the money that would have followed you to the public school would follow you to any uh, approved education provider of your choosing. And, and that's that's the gold standard, right? To have the money follow the child. So Ohio's backpack bill would be an excellent step towards unleashing educational freedom for all parents. I think it would become the gold standard for every other state legislature, which is why I'm really hoping Aaron Baer and the Center for Christian Virtue succeed in finding enough people to pass the backpack bill. I'm going to come right back after the break more with Corey DeAngelis of the Center or the American Federation for Children. We'll find out about his group. We'll find out what the agenda is. Don't go anywhere. It's a pivotal moment in American education. I really do mean that. I think it's a pivotal moment because of the Chicago teachers strike. I believe that Americans say, what? Huh? And we'll talk more about that after the break. Welcome back, America. The interview with Hugh Hewitt continues with Corey DeAngelis. Corey is the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children. Corey, for many years now, I've been involved with the Barney uh, Charter Schools Initiative at Hillsdale College, which is an attempt to bring classical K-12 through charter schools into the government school system, and with ACE scholarships, which simply raises money to put uh, underprivileged children into private schools because the opportunity cost of an unfilled desk at a great private school is infinite. And so those are the two things I've done. I do not know anything about the American Federation for Children. What is it? What is your aim? Yeah, we're a nationwide school choice advocacy group, and we have 501c3, 501c4, and cap, cap, uh, PAC capabilities. So we can be involved uh, with the uh, with advocacy, and we don't, it, we're, we're not just limited to 501c3. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're involved in many states. Uh, whenever a school choice bill is is in play, well, we can we can provide services in those states. Where did you come from? Who started the organization? How is it funded? So it's been around for uh, over a decade now, and um, we have multiple funders um, um, and. Yeah, I think um, Betsy DeVos was on the board at oh, one point. She is very good. She's she she. I don't believe she's on it anymore. She's not. But um, that's uh, part of the the roots of the American Federation for Children. See, one of the things about school choice is that many in the public believe it's some sort of sinister political plan. It actually isn't. Everyone I've met involved in the school choice program, whether it's Great Hearts in Arizona 
or Aaron Bear and CCV in Ohio or Betsy DeVos in Michigan or you in D.C., everyone is actually trying to improve the lot of America's children because our education system is paralyzed and falling apart. COVID has really stripped off uh, the cover on this, I believe, Corey. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes, the teachers unions have finally overplayed their hand and awakened a sleeping giant, which which happens to be parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. And uh, Randy Weingarten and, and the American Federation of Teachers have essentially given us a gift. And we should actually thank them in a way for inadvertently doing more to advance the concept of school choice and homeschooling than anyone could have ever imagined. Nationwide polling from Real Clear Opinion Research, for example, has found a 10 percentage point surge in support for school choice since April of 2020, with now about 74% of Americans supporting the concept of the money following the child. And 19 states in 2021 expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. And we're calling 2021 the year of school choice. And I think we're just getting started. We're seeing bills filed all across the country to expand educational freedom as we speak. Right before I got on the on the phone on this uh, call, we um, Virginia legislators are now introducing bills, education savings account bills, which are the, the best way to do this. Uh, and to have the money follow the child. And, oh, yeah, right. look, now, I want you to explain that to us, because when you say have yeah. the education follow the child, we have Pittsburgh Steelers fans listening. You have to break it down and go slow, Corey. Yeah, totally. So the basic concept is having the money uh, follow the child to wherever they're getting an education. And so, look, education is funded based on state, local and federal Funds um, with these bills is typically the state level funding that would have followed you to the government run school that you're residentially assigned to or the public school. You can still take it there if you want. You still have that option on the table. But if not, the, the funding would follow the child to pay for private school tuition and fees if you'd like. But you could also, in some of these programs, use the funding to pay for uh, a private tutor for these pandemic pods, micro schools, or any other approved education expenditure. So literally the money that would have followed you to the public school would follow you to wherever you wanted to spend the money. You couldn't obviously spend it at a, at a restaurant or non-education expenditures. It has to be used on on education and on average, how much how much does an American child receive annually for public education? Government run schools spend over fifteen thousand dollars per student per year, and it's probably a lot more now. That data that I just cited is from the 2019 U.S. Census Bureau. We've infused tons of bailouts since since 2019, so it's probably closer to uh, $19,000 per year. But even if we use that base number of about fifteen to $16,000 per student nationwide, compare that to the average private school tuition, which happens to be only around eleven dollars or $12,000 per student per year. Have the money fall to the child. You could even give some back to the, to the public schools and let them have a buffer. Give some back to the taxpayer. Give some to the families. And you create a win-win-win scenario where everybody benefits. Well, you know, I'm a product of Catholic education, and I believe the great tragedy of the last 30 years is the collapse of Catholic education because it was competition for the uh, public school system in almost every major city in America and a lot of small ones. When we come back after the break, Corey and I are going to continue on after the show today for our podcast to talk about where are the best bills. But, Corey, if someone wants to support the American Federation for Children, what's the website? 
Yeah, if you want to help us in the fight to fund students as opposed to systems, go to the educationfreedompledge.com. Educationfreedompledge.com. That's educationfreedompledge.com. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go over to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Corey and I will be back for another 10 minutes to talk about bills and what are happening in which states. Remember the Ohio backpack bill. That is the gold standard. Let's get it passed, Aaron. Get up and get to work. I'll be right back tomorrow, America. Thank you, Adam Dwayne. Thank you, Ben. Keep listening at the interview with Hugh Hewitt. now with Corey DeAngelis of the American Federation for Children. Corey, how big is the American Federation for Children? How many people are working there? About 50, give or take. What is the biggest source of energy right now? What is most of your focus on? Uh, Getting education savings account bills uh, passed. And we've had a ton of victories last year. As I said, it was the the year of school choice in 2021. And I think we're going to continue having that energy because a new special interest group has emerged, which happens to be parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. One of the biggest victories last year was in West Virginia. In 2020, they didn't have any charter schools. They didn't have any private school choice initiatives where the money followed the child. But in 2021, they passed the most expansive education savings account program in the nation. All families, regardless of income, would be eligible to take their children's state-funded education dollars to any education provider that oh, wow. that's that is approved. Yeah. Well, how much huge, per huge. how much per student is that in West Virginia? Do you remember? I think it's about four thousand or five thousand dollars per student. They have a fairly low state share of total funding there, but that that takes away the argument from the other side saying this is defunding the public schools. They, their public schools spend about triple that amount uh, per student, so they get to keep a large amount of funding for students who are no longer there. Just just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart and started shopping at Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep two thirds of their of your grocery bill each week in perpetuity. That would be a good deal for Walmart. I would argue that this is a pretty good deal for the public schools as well, because they get to keep money for students who are no longer educating. Well, Corey, I've never understood the argument that it's bad for public schools. I don't care if it's bad for public school. All I care about is does the child get served better by whatever system is in place. Is there any doubt in your mind that choice improves the outcomes for the vast majority of American children? Yeah, 25 of 27 studies find statistically significant positive effects of the competition from private school choice on the kids who remain in the public schools. So it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. And if you think, and look, their main argument is that this will steal money from the public schools, to which I respond that school choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools, if anything, defund families. School choice initiatives just return the money to the hands of the rightful owners. I mean, imagine if someone said that allowing families to choose their grocery store stole money from Walmart. Well, the money didn't belong to Walmart in the first place. K-12 education dollars don't belong to any particular institution, public or private. It's meant for educating the child. And so we should fund the student as opposed to the system. And look, their main argument really, it really lets the mask slip because they're, they're admitting that they understand that families will leave. They, so they know they're not doing a good job. That's an argument to let kids free, not to trap them in schools that are failing them. You see, I think we won the argument five years ago. I really do think we have won the argument. The problem is power now. The, uh, the California Teachers Association is the most powerful interest group in America. There is nothing close to it. Uh, I, I know people argue the tribes in California actually have more money, but they use it very judiciously. The prison guards have a lot of money. They use it very judiciously. They fight on narrow issues. CTA elects Democrats and they oppose Republicans. They stop everything that threatens their power base. How do you crack that nut, Corey DeAngelis? 
Well, there's got to be a breaking point, and I think we're figuring it out. Um, and, and, and you're right. And, and the reason that it is all about power, not logic now, is when you point out that we already fund students directly with higher education, with Pell Grants and with pre-K programs, the funding follows the decision of, of the student. You don't have to take your Pell Grant to the community college. You can take it to Notre Dame, a religious university, if you'd like. And, and the same people who support those things and then food stamps and Medicaid dollars that can be used at private religious Catholic hospitals, if you'd like, or Section 8 housing vouchers, they only oppose funding people as opposed to buildings when it comes to K-12 education because of power dynamics. Choice is the norm with higher education, pre-K, and everything else, but choice threatens the teachers' unions when it comes to K-12 education. And I think the way that we get around this is to just keep hammering the logic, but then also waking up parents. And that's why I think 2020 was so important, because parents saw what was going on in the classroom. They saw that the system didn't care about them all that much. And now they're pushing back harder than ever. And politicians would be wise to listen to the parents going forward. And I'm optimistic going forward because parents care about their kids more than anything else. And they felt powerless in 2020. And they're going to fight to make sure they never feel powerless ever again. Now, I have been encouraging listeners not to go off the deep end, but to involve themselves very much in school district politics and to pick a uh, pick a new candidate, find someone who is qualified to serve on a school board and get them to run and simply vote against every incumbent because the failure is systemic. It's not a district by district failure. It's a systemic failure in America. In fact, as we speak, nearly half the schools in Virginia are either closed or on a hybrid. 80 are actually closed, 900 are on hybrid, meaning half closed. And I believe remote learning is absolutely an oxymoron, uh, uh, Corey. I don't think it exists. And, and I've seen you do some writing about this as well. Where is the center of the battle? If West Virginia was last year, where is the battle in legislatures this year? Oh, there's tons of states. I mean, Virginia, as I said, just dropped a couple of education savings accounts bills. I think we can get that done in the House in Virginia. Who knows? Maybe um, even though there's a Democrat-controlled Senate, maybe you get a couple of Democrats to side with families. It happens sometimes. So, And, and we know Glenn Youngkin's a supporter of, of, of education savings accounts and, and, and school choice in general. So if it goes to his desk, he'll I would expect that he would sign it. So Virginia, I think there's going to be a lot of eyes on Virginia. But also uh, Governor Kim Reynolds from Iowa, she's made a huge push for school choice just last night during her state condition of the state address. Arizona Doug, Governor Doug Ducey, he just announced a program last week that if your public school doesn't open or if it closes even for one day, you can take up to $7,000 to a private or other type of uh, a private school or a, a homeschool type of, of option. And he did that through um, without the legislature because he used American Rescue uh, Fund, uh, American Rescue Plan funding. Uh, so Arizona might have a push, uh, uh, Iowa, and we're, we're seeing um, some other states as well yeah. expanding their existing programs. Doug Deuce is a friend of mine. I applauded that a great deal because that was uh, moving unilaterally and saying $7,000. That will put a lot of schools. The marginal cost of a desk in a private school or a charter is much lower than 7000 in Arizona. They'll be able to fill some desks that way. So you're trying to change the language, Corey. You're being very disciplined in calling them government-run schools and educational savings accounts. But let's broaden the, the lens for a moment. How does an educational savings account actually work? What does the parent experience as they try and take advantage of it, say, in West Virginia or in Virginia, if this bill were to pass? 
Yeah, so it depends on how the program is structured, but essentially, in general, the money that follows the child would go into an education savings account, much like a health savings account um, that most people are pretty familiar with. No, they're not. They're can... that. Who sets it up for the parent? <laughs> they're not familiar with any of this. This is part of the problem with uh, uh, Americans' assumption of evidence not yet before the public. They really don't know how health savings accounts don't work as much as they should, because people don't know how to run them. I mean, they're very, they're genuinely confused as to how to run them. Yeah, so it could be in the form of a debit card where you, you can use the debit card at at uh, providers of the services. And so you could take it to the private school. You could take it to that pay for sense. instructional materials or curriculum. And a lot of the times it, it can either be run by the state that does the approving. So they have an office at the Department of Education or they can have a third party private entity uh, run run the program as well. Uh, another way to do it is even without a debit card is you just have an online tool that's either run by the Department of Education or some other, uh, the third party con contracted private entity. And then you can select um, already approved uh, services off the website. So there's those two ways of doing it. And so a parent who wants to move into the system confronts a couple of barriers to entry. One is proximity and ease of getting them there. The second is, do you trust the quality of education that the child will get? And you know that the public schools carry with them a tradition and a, uh, a credibility that may not be warranted, but was earned by Pat. They're, they're eating the seed corn now. How do you persuade parents to take the risk? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's a decision they have to make for their own for their own kids. And, um, you know, you can show them the data on on private school review websites like great schools and and how the, the schools are doing. But in general, parents uh, from all backgrounds, they typically have an understanding of what the good schools are uh, just through heuristics. And so you, you can put the data in front of them. But then also, um, you know, I. I don't want to tell a parent that they should do this type of school or that type of school. I just want to provide them with the options. And, and it actually turns out that when you do introduce school choice into an area, there's a 2017 study published on this. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of, of the author, but it's peer reviewed. And they found that once school choice was introduced into the area, that online searches for school quality started to rise precipitously. So parents, once you empower them with choice, they start to become more involved with, with their kids' education. And I think that's a good thing all the way around without even having to nudge them into that direction. I think parents, uh, in some cases, may be less likely to be involved if they feel like they, they don't have an exit option. Why go look seek out alternatives if you feel like it's just going to um, – make you upset about being in, in the crappy public school. But once you're empowered to make that choice, parents become a lot more involved and start seeking out the options on their own. I believe that's true about uh, parents who have the ability, the time and the intellectual resources to do this. The most powerful argument against school choice that I've heard made is that it will inevitably take from the government run schools the most energized parents, the most engaged parents, the parents who have the greatest intellectual ability and the greatest financial resources from among the mean and move them into the private sector, or into private schools or homeschooling, leaving behind the children of the dysfunctional family, the children of the family of the immigrant who don't have great speech skills or online skills, the children of the family that are not even connected to the Internet. 
What's the response to that, Corey? Yeah, it could be the opposite as well. It could be that the people who are most involved with their kids' education already already have access to private schools or already in the best, the better public schools. So let's not act like the public schools have an even uh, even distribution of quality. The lowest, that the least advantaged families have their kids stuck disproportionately in the worst government-run schools. So it could be that you have a stronger incentive to exit. And, and to seek out these options if you're in the, the worst school. So it could be that the transfers are more likely to happen uh, disproportionately the other way. And then also, uh, look, as, as I kind of alluded to, is that more advantaged families are already at least more likely to have school choice and that they have access to the better public schools or that they have, they're yes. able to pay out of pocket. Um, so funding the student directly is actually an equalizer and allows more families to have educational opportunities. And look, the data just don't support that that argument. 25 of the 27 studies find positive effects, if anything, of competition on the kids who remain in the public schools. I think I think that is the argument. Not- the greater good is served by allowing children to flourish wherever they can flourish. And you have to we are at a point where we have to make these changes. The system has broken. Uh, Corey, I want to wrap up by asking, what do you expect your career path to be? You're an education advocate at 31. You do you imagine doing I'm 65. I couldn't imagine fighting this battle for 34 years. I like what I'm doing. I don't have a plan to switch anytime soon. So um, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun uh, uh, and, and I'm really mobilized and energized to empower parents to make the best choices for their kids. And we and although we're having a great um, amount of momentum right now, particularly with the pandemic, we still have a long way to go to empower every single family to have the funding uh, follow them to wherever they want to send their kid uh, any type of approved education. Have you so, noticed your uh, online following going up? Have you noticed that people are paying attention to you? Oh, yeah, totally. When I was at Cato Institute, uh, when I started all of this mess a few years ago, I probably had a thousand followers. Now I'm at what, maybe eight, 82,000 or something uh, around that number on, on Twitter, at least. So it's it's been a huge increase. People are, are hungry for learning about school choice and, and getting it done in their state. Uh, I oftentimes see that when I'll post about one state doing something, I'll get all these tags of these other government uh, governors uh, where, where residents are saying, well, where, where's our bill? I want to push for something in my state. And it's just as you said, that like we, we have the logic of the argument one. We we've won it. We've had it one for a while. It's just we need to overcome the power imbalance by 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 mobilizing families to be this new special interest group, um, so that the politicians listen to them as opposed to the employee unions. After all, the system is supposed to be about the kids, not about the adults. You know what Margaret Thatcher said is true. First, you win the argument, you then you win the vote. I think we are now in winning the vote phase, and I think you're leading that. And I compliment you on working assiduously and for your tone. You are not strident, Corey, and I hope you never lose that. To to argue with parents, you can't come off as being a strident fundamentalist, you know, back reaction. You have to be about quality and success and meritocracy. And you've hit that tone. I, I wonder if everyone in the organization is committed to tone. Yeah, totally. That's one of our um, our, our big uh, pushes is to, to get this to, to, to make the case in, in the media and to mobilize parents. And you can't really mobilize parents without really caring about what, what, what you're doing and really believing the cause. So I'm, I'm super happy to be on the team at AFC. 
Very welcome to have you again. It's the American Federation for Children. This is Corey DeAngelis. Follow him at DeAngelis. It's pretty easy to DeAngelis Corey. It's a great Twitter handle, DeAngelis Corey. And what's the website one more time, Corey? Uh, educationfreedompledge.com if you want to help us in the fight to empower parents. Educationfreedompledge.com. Corey DeAngelis, thank you for joining me on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. All right. Thank you so much. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.